We are going to be in Mark again this morning, Mark 6, verses 1 through 30. Marcos 6, versículos 1 a 30. Well, we've been in Mark now for a few months, and we've been asking the main question of who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Who is this man? And in response to that, we, we can also ask the question of how then should we respond? What shall we do? If he is who he says he is and he does these things he does, how, how ought we to respond to that? And for the last three weeks specifically, we've seen Jesus do mighty works with great authority. He had authority over nature and calming the storm. He had authority over demons and casting out the legion of demons. And last week, authority over disease and death. But this morning, this morning we're going to see something a little bit different. We're not going to actually see any of that. This morning, we see Jesus being rejected by his own countrymen and his disciples preparing for that same fate. And, and yet another Markin sandwich. Uh, this one, a little bit less clear, but as we'll see, the reason why Mark has this the way he does. So let's read. We're going to read verses 1 through 30. We're going to be in the ESV this morning, as always. Bibles underneath the chairs, and uh, open up your Bible app or browser to Mark 6, verses 1 through 30. He went away from there and came to his own hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony Against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, He is Elijah. And others said, 
He is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in the tomb. Then the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that does the work in our lives, that changes hearts, that causes people to believe. I pray that we would learn to depend on you and trust in you, regardless of what happens to us, regardless if our future looks like John's. I pray that we would understand that death comes to us all, but, but, a, but a particular death comes to, to those who believe and those who proclaim your word in a, in a hostile territory, in a world that rejects you, in a world that's that's going to reject us. I pray that you give us strength and help us to depend on you alone for all provision in our lives. I ask that you fill us with your spirit this morning. Let us learn from your word as we read. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, all of us naturally resist being completely dependent on anyone or anything including God. We, we like knowing the next steps. We like planning and executing and knowing what's going to happen next. Imagine with me that you're getting ready for a long trip. You got your suitcase pa- packed and you got your toiletry kit. You got everything ready to go and you get to the airport and you realize it's all back there. Some of us Don't have to imagine as much as others. But it's all back there, and you got a business trip coming up for two weeks, 
you got to go, and the plane's taken off, and all you have is your ID to get on that plane. You don't have your suitcase, you don't have your toilet kit, and you don't have a credit card, cash, or Apple Pay, or anything to buy any of it. And so you're going on this trip, and you're landing, and another thing, your hotel reservation is canceled. You have no place to stay. So now all you got is a shirt on your back, the pants, and your shoes. And you have to rely solely and completely on God to provide everything you need beyond the bare essentials through the hospitality of strangers. That's what we see this morning with the disciples and their dependence completely on God. And you would learn pretty quickly that you need to depend on God alone for all of your provision. God has created us this way. He is the vine. We are the branches. We need to stay attached to the vine to get our nourishment. And so we depend on the vine for all of life. And he's called us to live a life that is completely dependent upon him. Even if, even if that life leads to rejection. Because those sent by God will be rejected by men. We're going to have two, two points this morning. We've seen the text. The first one is the master's rejected. And the second one is that the disciples prepare for rejection. The first one, the master is rejected. This is verses 1 through 6. We see that Jesus goes to his hometown, and what happens? They marvel at his teaching, and yet they reject him. They recognize Get this, they recognize his power in teaching, and it produces amazement. Every time Jesus teaches, it produces amazement, even from those who reject him. They don't deny his authority and his wisdom in teaching. They don't deny his miraculous powers, and yet they reject him. This is a reminder. Mark is reminding us that Israel is still divided over the kingdom of God. And faith, faith is contrasted with Last week, especially. Last chapter. Right? Faith, last week with Jairus, and the woman who comes up and touches the garment of Jesus, in faith is healed. Jairus asked Jesus, come and heal my daughter. They both respond to him in faith, and yet here we see his family and his friends and his countrymen reject him, and they don't believe. And this is the mystery of the kingdom. That those who seem most likely to respond to Jesus in faith don't. And those who seem most unlikely, like the garrison demoniac, do. This is the mystery of the kingdom, the upside-down kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And yet we're also reminded who Jesus' true family is. Out of his own mouth, those who do the will of God. That's That's his true family. This scene, this scene of rejection was important for Mark's audience because they too were struggling with their own countrymen and their own family and and, and suffering persecution because of it. Well, it doesn't stop with them. I'm sure there's, there's some in this room who are right now having that same issue, that there is tension among you and your family because of your faith. And the deep relationships that you, you once had, 
with your parents, your siblings, even your kids, those deep relationships that you grew up with, and, and you know them, and they know you, and, but now the conversations are, are shallow because, because there's a fear of, of going deeper because your worldviews collide and the kingdoms collide. Or worse yet, there's no more relationship at all. There's been a, a severing of that. I would say take, take heart. Take heart because your king and your savior experience the same thing. You could be in the same boat as him this morning. So take heart in that. Why was Jesus rejected? I mean, there, there are many reasons why Jesus rejected, but, but we, we see two this morning, two specific reasons. One is familiarity. Familiarity breeds contempt. You guys have heard this saying before. They knew him. They knew this Jesus. They, they grew up with him. They, I, I, was, I was faster than him. I was stronger than him. I, I watched him get sick. I watched him bleed, and yet this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. This guy came into my house the other week and, and, and fixed my chair. He, he fixed my door. I know this man. I, I see his teaching and authority, and I can't deny that, but, but I, I know this man. I know him too well. He, he can't be the Son of God. He can't be the Messiah. That was the familiarity that they had with him. And the second was his lowly stature. It was, it was unfathomable and downright offensive. The Greek word is scandalous. This was a scandal that he dare say he is who he says he is. Because in the ancient world, your status was given at birth. The, the gods had decided. Fate had decided. If you were born the son of a carpenter, you don't dare defy that position. That's what you were. That's what fate had decided. And how, how dare someone come and say, I'm above the position that I was given at birth. That, that was the mindset, especially among the, the Greeks and the Romans. And in Judaism... A carpenter, to be clear, a carpenter was not a demeaning job. It was, it was honorable to work with your hands, but, but it was not a high-status job. It was not a job of nobility. That was the problem here, is that they looked at Jesus as, as a carpenter, a, a builder, and they said, he's, he's no different than us. He, he's not better than us. He's, he's one of us. He's like us. And those things continue to breed in their hearts into unbelief. And, and, and this, once again, of course, does not stop here. And we see this in church history. And I can tell you at the beginning of church history, by a guy named Origen, an early church father, very well-studied man, big figure in Christianity, was challenged by one of his contemporaries saying, your, your God is a carpenter. And yet Origen stands back and he says, well, I, I, don't, I don't see that in the manuscripts. Completely denying that it says it right here. And, and we know thousands of years later, it, it's here. It's in the manuscripts. He was afraid and he was embarrassed that his king and savior could have worked as a carpenter. And Mark, Mark, unlike Origen and unlike Jesus' family, 
is not embarrassed in the least. Mark gives no genealogy, beginning his gospel, that leads to David in the royal line. Mark doesn't have magi come and seeking the king, baby Jesus. He doesn't have that. What he has is a humble servant carpenter that does mighty works and speaks mighty things. That's Mark's version of Jesus, the servant, because Mark knows that the path to greatness is through service and sacrifice. This is why Jesus says later, chapter 10, that that those who want to be first, they need to be slave of all. And even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's the kingdom. That's kingdom living. Their rejection and unbelief led to a lesser degree of mighty works. Mark doesn't escape by this. Matthew says Jesus did no mighty works there. Mark says he could do no mighty works there. Whatever that link is between faith and Jesus' mighty works, Mark's highlighting and says, there's a link. And he just highlighted it last, last week too uh, in chapter 5 when the lady came up in faith and touched his garment and was healed. And I'll tell you what, Mark's, Mark's bar for mighty works is, is pretty high. I don't know if you guys caught it, but <laughs> Jesus laid his hands on a few people and healed them. According to Mark, that's not mighty works. Um, but but you, know, you know what? In comparison, in comparison to what Mark just wrote and what he's heard, it, it really is, it, it does pale in comparison. And what Jesus could have done had they had belief Mark's mind is this few people that he touched and healed, this is nothing. Nothing what he can do. And talking about unbelief, James Edwards uh, wrote a great commentary on, on Mark. You guys will hear his name come up over and over again. He says, What amazes God about humanity is not its sinfulness and propensity for evil, but its hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe in him. Then he goes on to say he interviewed a man who experienced Nazi Germany in the Third Reich. And he said, what was the worst evil you experienced about about the Third Reich? And the guy responded, the unredeemed human heart. The unredeemed human heart. The stubborn heart that rejects God at every turn for who he says he is. Because we have this idea of who God should be. And if they reject God, well, guess what? They will certainly reject those he sends. They will certainly reject those he sends. And that's what we see, and that's what Jesus is preparing his disciples for. The point number two, the disciples prepare for rejection. Let's look at verses seven through nine again. Get back into the context of this. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put on two, to not put on two tunics. He sent them out two by two, no doubt for protection, for fellowship, for testimony. The Old Testament says don't accept the testimony of one, but of two or three. And just to not do this alone, companionship. Christianity is not to be done alone, so he sends them out in pairs. 
And what had Jesus done up to this point with the disciples? What, what has he been doing with them? Well, first he called them. He called them out of their lives. He called them to himself to follow him as disciples. And then in chapter 3, he appointed them. He appointed them specifically, the 12, to be his disciples, to sit at his feet and to learn from him, to be apprentices under the master, under the teacher. And he taught them and he trained them. They stayed with him. It's no small thing that Mark mentions in verse 1, what we just read, that the disciples were with him. I don't know if you guys noticed, but when Jesus got rejected, the disciples aren't mentioned. But Mark decides to let us know, once again, the disciples were with him. Because that's what disciples do. They are present with their teacher, with their master. And they learn from him. And they saw his mighty deeds. Right? They witnessed everything because they were constantly with him. So now what happens is Mark is saying they're with Jesus in his rejection. Now they're present in his rejection by his own family. They see that. They notice that and they learn from that. And Jesus' purpose of appointing them, chapter 3, that they might be with him that they might learn from him, and that he might send them out to preach, to teach them, to equip them, let them learn from everything he's doing, and then send them out as apostles, the sent ones, the learned ones to the sent ones. That's what's happening here. And by any other measure, guys, by any other measure, these guys were not ready. They were not ready. If you've been tracking with us so far, they, they do not understand Jesus' teachings. They don't understand his parables. They, they, they're not really sure what's going on with that. They're exasperated with Jesus at times. You know, what, why are you sleeping in the boat? There's a storm here. And then, what, what do you mean someone came up and touched you? You're, you're in a crowd. Hundreds of people are touching you. They just, they're just not understanding what's going on with Jesus. And yet... And yet he sends them because they're not being sent by their own merits. They're not being sent because they in themselves are special or have reached a certain point of readiness. They are being sent in the authority of Jesus. They weren't sufficient, but they are being sent by the one who is all sufficient and who can provide for them. That is what they need. And they are sent out in complete and utter dependence on God alone to provide anything beyond the bare essentials of what he gave them. No extra clothes, no food, no toiletry kit, no money. They got sandals, shirt, and a staff. The bare essentials, like our trip that we mentioned earlier, completely trusting in God to provide all of it. On top of that, they were also to trust God to provide their lodging through the hospitality of perfect strangers. They didn't know these people. They had to go up and ask, in Jesus' name, can they, can they stay with them? And they and in, in the words in verse 10 is that they, they are supposed to stay there until they depart from there. What he's saying is, 
no comfort seeking. You aren't, you aren't to, if you, if you walk up to a house and they accept you, and it's a one-bedroom hut with eight kids, that, that's, your, that's your provision. You're not to go looking for the, the, the rich Christian who wants to invite you into his eight-bedroom hut. I don't know if those exist, but it's not comfort-seeking. They are, they are on a mission, and the purpose was to eliminate the comfort-seeking, to eliminate the distractions, because this mission was to proclaim the gospel. And these were precise and intentional instructions to remove dependence on anything else, comfort on anything else, and to look and to trust in God alone for the provision. Because dependence on God is vital to our health as believers. It's non-negotiable. It's how we're created. Yet it's one of the most difficult things you will ever do. Jesus intentionally removed these things that caused dependency. Question is, what is he intentionally removing in your life that caused dependency on something other than him? What, what are you holding on to? What are you running to? When the anxiety comes, the turmoil gets worse. If you're at home with your kids, are you, are you depending on the moment that your spouse comes home so you can just put them off on, on them? If it's, been a, if it's been a crazy day and the kids are not listening and they are disobedient and this is getting to your core as a parent in your identity of what am I doing wrong why are they not listening? And then just waiting for your spouse to get home so you can just kind of remove that burden, kind of let that, that burden go. Or what about at work? What about at your, your jobs? When the workload gets too much, do you, do you go into overdrive? Is it extra coffee, extra hours, less sleep? Are you... Are you more planning, more problem-solving? Are you determined to fix this problem before you can rest? That's the question. Are you problem-solving? Are you getting in that mode before you can find rest? How about evangelism and discipleship? Do you rely on your rhetoric or your argument, your persuasiveness? I can tell you, I do. We just had dinner with one of our neighbors uh, a few nights ago, and he, he told me he's a, a Buddhist, and he's been one for, for 40 years. And instantly I go to, okay, what, what, what holes can I poke in his worldview? How, how, can, I, how can I show him that what he's believing is, is wrong? Because I mean, it is, and I, and I care for him. But that's, that's what I'm going to, and that's, that's what I'm trusting in, is, is how can I persuade this guy to believe something different? What about trusting in the simple gospel message, that God loves you, he sent his son to die for you, 
And if you believe in him, you will receive eternal life because he rose from the dead and he will raise you too from the dead. Trusting in that message that has the power to, to salvation and prayer and dependence on God to change his heart or her heart or whoever's heart you is you're trying to reach. Not, not to get away from these other things, persuasive arguments, they're good, but don't, don't trust in these things. Trust in the, the power of the gospel message and the power of prayer and depending on God to change their hearts. I also heard a recent podcast, a, a missionary podcast, and a missionary who's been overseas for 14 years, and the title of the podcast was that missions is, is easier than it seems. And, and he goes on to defend it. And his very simple defense was, the power is in the seed, not the seed thrower. The power is in the seed, and if, if missionaries can get that, if any of us can get that, then it takes that burden off and it removes your idea of what success and failure is. And it was specific context to missionaries because a lot of them burn out after a while because it's tough to go overseas, to go in a different culture. It is already really difficult. Now you're adding the burden of trying to save people and you're putting that burden on yourself. And you're, you're trying to come up with different methods and different arguments to, to do that, and, and, and they burn out. But if you can understand, and we can trust that the power is in the seed, and we can trust for God to grow that seed, and we do it through prayer and trusting him to do that, that would just melt away that burden of what I think success should be. And then I'm just Faithful. And I'm just faithful with proclaiming that message to people. And ultimately, it is up to them whether they receive or reject that. And one more, George Mueller. You guys have heard of George Mueller. He, he ran an orphanage. This, this was a man who depended on God, who trusted in God and learned that dependence. There's several instances like this one I'm going to read you. But in this specific one, his orphanage, they had no food, and they had no money to go buy the food. Just like the disciples that we saw that were sent out. He says, early one morning, Abigail was playing in Mueller's garden on Ashley Down when he took her by the hand. He said, come, see what our father will do. He led her into a long dining room. The plates and cups and bowls were on the table. There was nothing on the table but empty dishes. There was no food in the larder, no money to supply the need. The children were standing waiting for breakfast. Children, you know we must be in time for school, said Mueller. Then lifting his hands, he prayed, Dear Father, we thank you for what you are going to give us to eat. And according to the account, a knock was then heard at the door. The baker stood there. Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I, I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast. And the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 o'clock and baked some fresh bread and have brought it. And Mueller thanked the baker and praised God for his care. Children, he said, we not only have bread, but the rare treat of fresh bread. Almost immediately there came a second knock at the door. This time it was the milkman who announced that his milk cart had broken down outside the orphanage. 
and that he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so he could empty his truck and repair it. This was a man who learned dependence on God because he knew, he knew that God cared for him and he cared for all of those kids in his charge and he loved them and he wouldn't let them go hungry. He trusted in God for provision. So embrace your God-given limitations. Always wanting extra hours in the day, days in the week, energy to be productive. Embrace your limitations. This isn't to say that long days and, and long hours are bad, but it is to remove your trust in that process as the solution. Don't trust that process of getting right into productive mode and problem-solving mode to find your rest. It's about trusting in God to provide and to find your rest in that. We're going to finish up here with the story of, of John and, and Herod. And we're about to see, as we actually have already read, what it looks like to trust God with whatever happens. In John's story, we see, we see the cost of true discipleship. That's, that's why this is here. That's why Mark interrupts this story. Uh, very, very much interruption that, that is kind of hard to understand at first. But that's what he's doing. He sent out He's saying Jesus sent out disciples, and then he stops, and he goes back to what the cost of true discipleship looks like. And that's John the Baptist with Herod. The purpose, the interruption, is to show that true cost of discipleship. Because you can't think of discipleship without thinking of death. You can't think of missions without thinking of martyrdom. Not every disciple is going to experience death in this way. But many, many do. A conservative estimate says that 400 Christians every month are murdered for their faith. That's conservative. That's the ones that we know about. Another stat said that since the time of Jesus, there's been 70 million Christians who have died because of their faith. That's a reality we must face. We must understand that as disciples... Death is a very real possibility. John was a humble man of God, yet he was rejected by his own because of his message. And Edwards again says, whoever would follow Jesus must first reckon with the fate of John. John's martyrdom not only prefigured Jesus' death, but it also prefigured the death of anyone who would follow him. That's why Jesus says later that if you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself. Pick up your cross and then follow me. Deny yourself. Be ready to take on the cross as many did. And whatever that cross might be, whatever persecution that may be, whatever affliction that might be. Jesus, the perfectly humble man of God, who in his humanity relied completely on the Father, submitted himself to the Father's will. 
whatever that will might be. Not my will be done, but yours. He was rejected, humiliated, mocked, and scorned so that he might taste death for us all. And that through his death, he would conquer death and apply that victory to anyone who would believe. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to lay his life down for us. And because of his perfect life and his death and his resurrection, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And if you haven't yet trusted in him, trust in him, the one whom all authority has been given. Trust him, the one who has victory and authority over death, that he would grant you life. And for those of us who have, those of us who have trusted in this one, he sends us in his authority to proclaim the gospel. And as we go, we, we know that rejection is a reality that we will face. As Jesus said in John's gospel, if they hated me, they will hate you. They will reject you. So we go. We go trusting in the one who was humiliated. The one who was executed on that cross that led to his vindication and exaltation. To his ascension in which he stands at the right hand of the Father and he advocates for us day and night. We, we trust in that one who was rejected for us. Let's pray.